God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. My administration will be focused on three very important words. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This man must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course, he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Hold on to your seats. Buckle up for safety. You are now entering another dimension with The Scott Adams Show. And that's right. My name is Scott Adams. You're listening to The Scott Adams Show. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. And, you know, a lot of uh, wins. A lot of things have been happening. A lot. We're making, we're advancing the ball. And um, we're exposing the truth one step at a time without the help of mainstream media. But these little radio stations and shows and programs and uh, really are making a difference. And it's really where it used to be that um, YouTube channels and and radio programs on digital or, or AM radio were shunned upon. Remember back in the 80s and 90s when Rush Limbaugh was reigning supreme and they wanted to uh, de- you know ban uh, the AM frequency and they wanted to give more money to NPR and things like that. We're already seeing, we're going to listen to a Josh Hawley clip soon today uh, where he talks about censorship, but he does it in such a way that's so clever because it's couched around uh, the sexual books that are being read to our children in schools and how the left is all of a sudden all about free speech when they were the ones just about eight years ago that banned the song It's Cold Outside, Honey, It's Cold Outside, or To Kill a Mockingbird, um, and so many others. Censorship in the name of wokeness. But uh, Josh Hawley calls her out uh, this uh, committee Hearing in a committee hearing, this uh, mem- uh, person that was speaking and uh, centers it around the kind of censorship that the Biden administration has been sued for and lost in the Supreme Court. So there's that. Then we have Biden, who basically got it wrong again, said that the United Audio Auto Workers will likely not strike, like somehow 
he knew something that the auto workers uh, union bosses didn't know. Well, now they're striking. And you just wonder, I was in a, I actually saw a concert last night, the Squeeze and the Psychedelic Furs. And, uh, in Arlington, and um, was talking with some folks over there, and uh, we were talking about uh, these uh, cities. We were talking about San Francisco and how it's declined. And I said, I remember seeing a photo of the Golden Gate Bridge, and this Golden Gate Bridge was being built in like 1938 or something like that. And that's because San Francisco was emerging it was exploding in san francisco here's this beautiful bridge with you know a whole life ahead of it they're building it the golden gate bridge and next thing you know we're we're less than 100 years later 80 years later that city has gone all the way up and come back all the way down and we were talking about that, and I said, well, it's not much different than Detroit. Detroit was the richest city in the world because of the auto workers and the uh, manufacturing that was going on there. And it was the richest city in the world in Detroit, Detroit in 1960. And then all of a sudden, they got these this liberal, liberal leadership, and now it's been run to the ground, sort of like Philadelphia and every other major city in America. Atlanta will be next, Milwaukee, Detroit, all the places where they involved themselves in election rigging to overthrow the 2020 election and to rig elections in general. And this is what we've been dealing with. Because there's just no way that Joe Biden, a laughing stock of the world right now, got got 81 million votes. There's just no way, no how. The only reason why they tallied 81 million was because Trump probably got close to 80 million. I think they robbed Trump of six, six million to bring him down to 74 million, the most of any incumbent ever in history. So they knew that the number had to be off the charts. I think so, things are so bad for the Democrats right now that they're going to have to break the algorithm. There was a meme floating around that said there was hundreds of counties where they exceeded 100% voter turnout. And of course, when we see these open borders, we know that every person that's coming through is getting tagged with a number, getting processed through motor voter without our knowledge, and a ballot is going to be created in their name, and they don't even know it. And that ballot's going to be picked up by a ballot harvester. And over the course of 30 days, that ballot is going to be dropped off, filled out and dropped off in a box. Anonymously. Wearing masks. Without signature verification, which is the key. And be counted only after the election results are in. So they know exactly how many votes they need. That is what we're up against right now. And that is in large part thanks to people like McRhinos, like McDaniel, McCarthy, and McConnell, who sold America out. 
sold their party out because they got in bed with the multinational corporation donors who are all owned by BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, who partner with World Economic Forum, who push the CBDCs, the climate agenda, and who push open borders for cheap slave labor that the corporations can profit from. And they push the Paris Agreement so that it could be mandated that cheap slaves like the Uyghurs in China can make the products that they sell around the world. And this is all being done right in front of our noses. And the average person going to work in their truck in the middle of America doesn't have time and can't basically get into all of this. They just want to live their lives free from all government intrusion. And that's all anybody wants. We were born free. We belong to God, not government. Government. Government is trying to replace God by getting involved in every aspect of your life. And it's just so important that we not allow that to happen. So we have some audio clips, and we're going to go ahead and play this clip because it wasn't just but last week, about 10 days ago maybe, that Joe Biden said, the UAW, the auto workers are not going to strike. I just, and the auto worker bosses were like, that's news to me. I think we are going to strike. And Joe Biden's just out to lunch. He doesn't know what's going on. Lies about everything. And here we go. We're going to go ahead and play this exchange with Jean-Pierre. Possible strike. The president said yesterday when he was asked if he was worried about it, he said, no, I'm not worried about a strike until it happens. I don't think it's going to happen. The head of the UAW said he must know something we don't know. Why is the president confident a strike will not happen? I mean, as you know, Karen, as someone who's followed this president uh, very closely for some time now, he he's optimistic. He is an optimistic person. Uh, and he's going to continue to re- remain optimis- optimistic as these negotiations continue and that it will result in a win-win. And me- remember, this is a president that believes in collective bargaining. He believes on both sides coming to the table uh, and that uh, with, you know, the, with the UAW being at the heart of an electric vehicle future made in America with good-paying union jobs, we believe this is a win-win, right? We believe this is incredibly important. And so uh, we believe as well auto workers uh, should get the wages and benefits they deserve. Uh, this is a president that has been very uh, consistent and and has been uh, um, has has said that over over the last two years. So he's optimistic uh, that both sides are going to come to the table and come to an agreement, as we've seen. Well, they're striking right now, so you know what's that going to do? Um, more importantly than that exchange is this exchange. Let's take a listen. This coming Friday, the auto. The auto, the union auto workers is likely going to strike. Nearly 15 
nearly 150,000, excuse me, will stop working, leaving General Motors, Stellantis, and Ford without anyone to build the cars that drive our economy forward. If you ask President Biden, he'll say, it's no big deal, and the strike's not going to happen. Well, let me tell you, Mr. President, guess again. The strike is real, and the dawn is coming tomorrow. While I don't always agree with big labor and their strategies, I can see why they're angry. They've watched as their companies have sold out to the radical Green New Deal agenda and have placed EVs ahead of their employees. Yes, I want to say that. These companies have placed EVs ahead of their employees. For those that don't know, it's simple. EVs take less parts. Less parts means less workers, and less workers hurts our economy. And make no mistake about it, this is happening because of Joe Biden's EV mandates and his reckless agenda to rid the world of reliable, reliable engines. It's not, it's not a sustainable plan, but Biden seems not to care. And some automakers are just going along to get along with Biden. Because even when their profits decrease due to EVs, they have doubled down on their plan at the expense of men and women who build our cars. I want to be clear about something. I'm not against EVs, but I am against mandates. And I am against abandoning things that actually work. Gas-powered engines work, and they work well. EVs barely work, and they're unreliable, which is something Secretary Granholm knows very well. The gentleman's time has expired. Right. So, you know, part of this is, is that they don't want you to drive a car. We listened to a clip earlier this week, and it was about, Making it so you couldn't go faster than 20 miles per hour. Making it almost like driving your car, you can get there faster on a bike. So, lo and behold, they build all these bike lanes everywhere. Now, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of bike lanes, but then again, I'm not a big fan of the politics that's behind it. Because when you think about it, they're building these bike lanes so that you get away from a car. And you could say, well, okay, that, that, that right there might not be a bad thing. But then you get the idea of why they're doing it, because they want to stack you up and build these 15-minute cities. And now you're on a leash. You're basically on a leash with a chip in your arm, sort of like a dog that has an invisible fence. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's crazy. But they don't want you to stray too far from home. They need to keep you under control. You know, if you don't pay your taxes, they'll digitally take your money. If you consume too much climate, they'll tax you. They're already doing that model with ESG, Environmental Social Governance. They're already doing equity programs with the EI. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
You know, they got quotas for everything. You're nothing but a number on a spreadsheet. And that's the way our medicine has become, too. We're a barcode, like an Amazon box, going through a conveyor belt. When we're passed along in a gurney in a hospital. I know that firsthand. I felt like a box when I was in the hospital. Nobody knew my name or looked me in the face. They were all from Africa or some other third world country. And they learned how to scan a barcode and draw your blood. But that's all they could do. They were not doctors. They were not health professionals. They were technicians. And our society in general is decaying in that fashion. We are human beings. You know, we used to cook and clean and and we used to talk to each other. We used to look people in the eyes. We used to have quiet time. We used to have quality of life. I don't know what it would be like to be having to navigate through the next third, you know, if I was uh, born in 2010 and I'm 10, you know, 13 years old today. I, I, I don't know what it would be like to live the rest, how that, how challenging that must be. But it requires more self-discipline than ever. Just like people need to learn how to control their food intake or their alcohol or whatever it is. Whatever vice there might be. And we we, we all need to probably uh, be aware of all that self-discipline and cognitive you know, fortitude. But in any case, yes, what that woman is talking about when she talks about UAW and the auto strike is that's really about, and the electric vehicles, we think it's just about climate. But actually, I think it's about less workers. Kiosks, automation, artificial intelligence, All of these things are part of the World Economic Forum agenda. They talk about it all the time. And that guy, uh, I forget his name now, but the advisor to Klaus Schwab, like Harvani or whatever his name is, we played a series of clips last week on him. And he talked about, you know, useless eaters, Food eaters, like we just consume food. That's why the World Economic Forum is pushing depopulation. Because you're just useless. In the world of kiosks, artificial intelligence, and now electric vehicles where they they only need half the, the um, employment. Elon Musk is no exception. These are not your normal car manufacturing plants. And maybe that's really the secret sauce behind the push, the corporate push for electric. Never mind the fact that they don't they're not as good. 
Never mind the fact that you're going to end up on the short end of the stick, inconvenienced, with a driving range of 100 miles, which is very much in line with these 15-minute cities. Electric vehicles are great for like a European city. It has a, you know, five-mile square radius and small little streets where they could put you in a speed zone to where you could drive a golf cart faster. You see what I'm saying? They're putting you in a box and you don't even know it. All right, so the other big story we're going to cover today is Hunter Biden's indictment. It's not what it seems. And this is what Jesse Waters had to say about the indictments. The the president's son, Hunter Biden, has been indicted on gun charges. A Colt Cobra 38 special was illegally purchased, then dumped in a dumpster next to a school. It was lost. And the Bidens blamed an illegal alien. Count one, lying on a gun form. He said he wasn't addicted when he was. Count two, making false statements to a gun dealer. Again, lying about his drug addiction. And count three, for owning a firearm while on drugs. Hunter's facing a maximum prison sentence of 25 years and a three-quarter million dollar fine. Democrats have run on gun control for decades, and now that Hunter Biden's been charged with gun crimes, Democrats don't care, as long as it doesn't hurt Biden's re-election. The Justice Department charges have nothing to do with the president. Hunter Biden is a private citizen. He is not the president of the United States. It sounds like a prosecutor appointed by Donald Trump kept by Joe Biden to investigate his own son has found that there's no wrongdoing that Joe Biden did. So, um, great. (laughs) These charges don't matter. This gun case will be dragged out until after the election, allowing the attorney general to say he can't talk about ongoing investigations and allow Hunter to plead the fifth if subpoenaed. This is the only crime that doesn't involve Joe Biden, and it's the only one that's being prosecuted. Think about that. This just lets the Justice Department save face and say, see, take us seriously. We're holding Hunter accountable. And then he'll just cut another deal after the election or get pardoned. But the Democrats' defense is getting gashed. Today, they've been forced to admit that Hunter Biden's business partner was Joe Biden's accountant when he was vice president. And this just in. Joe Biden had lunch at the vice president's residence with Hunter's Kazakhstani business partners. You remember the guys that bought him a Porsche after they had dinner with Biden at Cafe Milano? And the Kazakhstani who had the brunch with Biden? Oh, he's in prison for treason. Wonder how Joe likes his eggs. (laughs) Scrambled. All right, let's take a listen to this. This this person, Frisia, wrote this. He says, whoa, watch the entire video, right? So we're not going to watch the entire, it's 10 minutes, so we're not going to do that. But um, it says Hunter Biden is being charged with nothing that he actually should be charged with. Hmm. That's kind of an interesting comment. Let's take a listen. They're supposed to be Joe Biden is supposed to be a public servant. And, you know, a senator from Delaware, Delaware. Great. Back in 1972, you managed to get 116,000 votes, and that put you on a trajectory to be president of the United States. Let's be real about Delaware and (laughs) the insignificant politician Joe Biden was for most of his career. Delaware is smaller than most counties in America. 
Delaware, the state, is smaller than San Bernardino, California, smaller than Maricopa County. The whole state, smaller than counties. You see this? Clark County in Nevada, (laughs) bigger than Delaware. Uh, Suffolk County on Long Island, bigger than Delaware, even has more people. But somehow they think they are the princes and kings and queens. And let's face it, (laughs) Biden got lucky. Obama picked him because, in part, Joe Biden was mediocre. You know, he didn't want to be upstaged. He didn't want somebody younger, somebody that people would look at and say, maybe we prefer that guy to you. Joe Biden had no... I think he actually wanted somebody controlled and corrupt and insured. That's what Obama wanted because Obama knew he was going to blow the doors off of corruption. Real political future, one of the reasons why he was chosen. All right. Let's go back to the gun. It's interesting that they indict Hunter on this uh, the day after a fake news favorite by the name of David Ignatius. He writes, I think, for the Washington Post. He writes a column that says Joe Biden should not run uh, for reelection and neither should Kamala Harris. And he says it, you know, very clearly. Uh, Let's put it up on the screen, please. Uh, I don't think Biden and Vice President Harris should run for reelection. Uh, All right. I agree. But what else? He cites Hunter and Burisma, Hunter and China, phoning Hunter during dinner with foreign oligarchs. He also says, you know, Kamala Harris is a problem and that time is running out. In a month or so, this decision will be cast in stone. It will be too late for other Democrats. Um, I hope Biden has this conversation with himself about whether to run and that he levels with the country about it. Now, Ignatius writes this column. I call on him to not run for reelection. He already knows he's not going to run for reelection. He already knows that. He wants to come off as the guy who suggested it and the president followed his advice. Therefore, this, you know, fairly anonymous columnist changes the history of the world. Does that make sense? I think that's what's going on here. The indictment comes down. And there's something else about this indictment. I know we heard from Comer, and I actually agree with this, but there's something else. The indictment is small potatoes, but at the same time, it's real. It's a real crime. Hunter had that gun. Hunter's an addict. Hunter lied about it on that form. This is real. Compare it to the indictments that came down on Donald Trump, right? They're two indictments back to back. They're never going to come out with another indictment on, on Hunter. When that happened, we just knew it was fake. Americans get it. It just, it, it, it did not make any impact. But Hunter... And all we know about him and all he's done and uh, all the evidence, this is actually real. I know maybe they're trying to help him, but. Mm, We'll see. All right. Another comment on this is uh, the Hunter indictment is smoke and mirrors and just effectively put uh, and and has just effectively put the kibosh on the GOP, GOP impeachment. No testimony now from Hunter. It's also interesting that McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, opened up the impeachment inquiry, right? And then you got Matt Gates kind of uh, threatening McCarthy uh, with a vote to, you know, get remove him from the speakership. So it's 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 a lot of a lot of under under uh, things happening behind the scenes underneath the surface. DC Games, you know, basically, we all knew that these indictments surrounding Hunter were a farce. And that's why it wasn't really my top story. 
So this is pretty good. Josh Hawley brings the receipts on censorship. It's really quite quite entertaining. We're going to go ahead and take a listen to this. It's great. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to the witnesses for being here. Um, I think it's safe to say that that all of you are here today because you are opposed to government censorship. Is that is that right? Have I got that broadly correct? Okay, we can agree on that much. Um, book banning is a form of government censorship. Is that broadly speaking correct? Professor Knox, let me, you're an expert in this. Let me just ask you. Um, book banning is a problem under the First Amendment because it's the government telling private individuals, authors, what have you, what they can and cannot write, telling the public what they can and cannot read. Is that broadly speaking correct? Yes, that's correct. So now what if, what if the books were digital only? Could the government ban them then? So no, no hard copies, no, no physical copies, it's just digital books. Could the government engage in book banning then under the First Amendment? No problem. No, that's about a format of the particular book, and that really doesn't matter when it comes to whether or not government is banning a book. Okay, what, what, if, what if the government made a list of authors whose books it wanted banned and also went to all of the publishing houses in America, the government did, and said, do not publish the books by any of these authors or we will punish you. Is that a problem at the First Amendment? My hope is that the government would not be involved in the decisions of a private company. Good. I would hope so, too. But apparently that is not the case in the United States of America today under this administration. Because the hypotheticals I've just given you aren't hypotheticals at all. They've happened. And we know that they are happening the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just ruled in a case, Missouri versus Biden. I'm sure you're all familiar with this. It's going to go down, I think, as a landmark case in the worst possible way in First Amendment law, because what the Court of Appeals found is that the White House, not just the federal government, but the White House actively coerced every major social media platform in America. Let me say that again. Every major social media platform in America to ban speech that the White House did not like. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about speech on the COVID-19 pandemic, speech on the 2022 congressional elections, speech related to mask mandates, speech related to vaccines. What did the White House do? Well, over a period of years, they met with on a regular basis the leaders of social media companies, and demanded that the speech they did not like be taken down. They further demanded that these same social media companies amplify the White House's speech. Amazing. So take down all of this speech that we don't like, amplify our own speech. Unbelievable. What kind of speech are we talking about? Well, for example, not just public officials, but Parents, here's an example from my state, the state of Missouri. This is, I'm reading you from the opinion here. One parent who posted on nextdoor.com, which is a site operated by Facebook, posted an online petition to encourage his school to remain mask optional, found that his posts were removed without notifying him, and his friends never saw them 
Another parent in the same school district who objected to mask mandates for school children responded to Dr. Fauci on Twitter and promptly received a warning from Twitter that his account would be banned if he did not delete the tweets criticizing Dr. Fauci's approach to mask mandates. These objections, amazingly, these, this censorship was taken at the direct behest of the federal government, the direct behest of the Biden administration. Professor Knox, is this a violation of the First Amendment? Only a judge can make that determination. And a judge has. I'm glad you said that. Multiple judges. The district court, federal district court, said there was a direct First Amendment violation. Court of Appeals, unanimously, three-judge panel, unanimously said direct First Amendment violation. I can't think of another time in American history when the president of the United States, and I say that advisedly because the record reflects that White House officials were sending emails and communications to these companies saying that the president himself wanted the censorship. So you've got the government doing exactly what Professor Knox said is not permitted under the First Amendment, directly coercing the speech of private parties, and not just one or two authors, but parents all across the country, unprecedented in the history of this nation. So I'm glad we're having this hearing today. I hope that we will have more like it to expose the censorship happening at the highest levels of our government. Mr. Chairman, I'd ask that this this opinion, this judgment by the Fifth Circuit, Missouri versus Biden, be entered into the record in full. Wow. So that, that was an incredible exchange right there. And uh, I, the professor knew what was about to come, I'm sure, but knew the trap she was in. Uh, so kudos to Josh Hawley for that. Here's one about um, from Claudia Tenney to Granholm, who basically perjured herself and won't resign. Uh, thank you, Mr. Uh, Chairman. Obama. These are these are all exchanges that just happened. This was dated September 14th. So, you know, just uh, this week. And thank you for having this meeting. And thank you, Secretary Granholm. Uh, for being here. And uh, I'm going to get into a topic which I know that's not going to be popular, but I, I think it's really important. Um, and so, Mr. Chairman, I ask unanimous consent to insert four articles into the record detailing Secretary Granholm's various ethics issues and two articles from the Department of Energy's website concerning its ethical policies. First, without, I just want to... Without exception. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this is an article from Reuters, uh, U.S. Secretary... Uh, Energy Secretary Granholm violated ethics laws, Watchdog says. An article from CNN, Biden touts electric car company potentially worth millions for his energy secretary. Uh, From Washington Free Beacon, Energy Secretary's husband held stock in Ford as administration approved billions in electric vehicle subsidies. Next article from Fox News, Biden Energy Secretary Granholm admits false testimony about owning stocks. The next I want to just point out and, and put these for the record, Mr. Mr. Chair, just so people have them. These are ethics, 14 principles of ethical conduct for federal employees. That's right on the Energy uh, website. Ethics, impartiality in por- performing official duties. Uh, wanted to be sure that. Objection. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So since taking office, I know uh, Secretary or uh, my colleague, Mr. Iser, referred to some of these issues, but since taking office in January of 2021, Secretary Granholm has violated the Hatch Act multiple times. She's owned Proterra stock while her boss, President Biden, repeatedly promoted the company. We saw this huge payout. Uh, she admitted three months after she took office. Her husband owned Ford stock while she personally promoted the company's work with official resources, and she cashed in on millions of dollars after these illegal transactions and failure to disclose obvious conflicts, conflicts were revealed. As you said, you, it took you uh, three months before you actually sold the stock. And most critically, she lied under oath to Congress, claiming she did not own any individual stocks when, in fact, she did. Anyone disputing these charges could consult to these articles that I put in the record. They're available for everyone. And uh, I just want to go to uh, Madam Secretary. The DOE's ethical rules uh, or federal, generally federal employee ethics laws provide that, quote, public service is a public trust. Employees must place loyalty to the Constitution, the laws, and ethical principles above gain, as I cited in the ethical principles that are part of your own department. Do you believe that any Department of Energy or other federal employee violating this rule should resign or be removed from office for this position? First of all, let me say that we take ethics. That's a yes very, or no question. Do you think if someone violates very, the ethical laws set forth in this, that you took, you said you signed a statement, uh, an ethical statement that you would comply with the laws, do you think that a DOE employee or other federal employee who violates these laws should step down from that position? Is that that's a yes or no? If they violate the ethics laws, I understand what you're trying to do. Well, I'm 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 asking you a specific question. Okay, you're not going to answer the question. A number of allegations that I feel I've put against me personally. This is my time, Mr. Chairman. I know, but you've Um, made these out there, and I feel it is important to respond. Let me just tell you, this is what you you uh, you did not answer the yes or no question. You obviously believe that it's okay to violate the ethics rules. Of course, I do not believe it's okay to violate ethics laws, nor does anyone else in the Department of Energy. This is my time. So what you're trying to say is afterwards, once I realized and I spoke to Congress that I was not telling the truth about what was happening, I went back and admitted, oh, I made a mistake. So admitting the truth after being caught lying doesn't actually cure perjury. I don't know if you know that legally. I know you're an attorney. So you've admitted to testifying falsely and then came back and said, I corrected it later. But that doesn't cure the fact that you actually committed perjury. We've actually impeached presidents uh, over committing perjury. And this is actually involved in your your official duties. And and we actually impeached presidents. (laughs) So they can't have it both ways. If they're going to do that to Trump, we're already starting to benefit from the impeachments against Trump, and it's being used right there. Also, after signing an ethics uh, oath that you said that you signed and admitted to today, and on top of admitting that it was three months after you took office that you actually sold the stock on the private market, as as Daryl, Congressman Issa put out. So to me, that's perjury, and that's simple. That's, That's perjury, period. Why should you not resign, or why should we not consider... Uh, some kind of impeachment inquiry into you for your perjury charges. We've done that with presidents of the United States in the past. Number one, I made a mistake when I testified saying that I had sold all stock. 
I honestly so, thought we had. So wait, but a minute. I was so, wrong. so I'll reclaim my so, time. You're a lawyer. You know that perjury. You cannot go you back take, and say I made a mistake. Perjury exists when you give a false statement under oath, which you did. Oh, did you not? No, I did not intentionally. I thought we had divested of all stocks. We had divested Look, this of is, all. This is the colossal ego stocks. of this administration that people in the American people are frustrated with. You serve the American people. You don't serve President Biden. You don't serve a special interest. You serve the American people. Of course. We would appreciate you coming forward on this. I am coming forward if you would let me explain. Uh, Appointees with lesser conflicts, honestly, would have withdrawn their nomination or they would resign from office. Thank you. I yield back. my. (laughs) Wow. That was really interesting because she got her, caught her red-handed. Wow. Yeah, you you know, okay, you you busted me, you caught me, right? I lied. <laughs> it wasn't intentional, you know. I made a mistake. How many times has she fired somebody else for making that same mistake? All right, so um, talking about censorship. Uh, before we get to Ken Paxton, because I want to talk a little bit about Ken Paxton today as well. That's a kind of an interesting uh, court case. I think Ken Paxton's winning in a landslide, but I'd be shocked if he is found guilty. The judge seems to be very favorable with the motions from the from his team, and uh, I've been watching that trial. It's quite entertaining, and you know there was this one thing where they said he got a kickback. For some granite granite countertops. And they have photos from... And and the prosecutors are lying about these countertops. I guess they're really expensive. You know, maybe... I I don't know how much granite countertops cost, but they had pictures from when they said the before picture. And then they just took recent photos. And the prosecutors fought tooth and nail to keep the photo out which showed that there was no change in the countertops and that there was no new granite countertops that had been alleged. And so where are the countertops? And so it's kind of an interesting thing where they're trying to get him on kickbacks and they didn't, they, they can't get him on kickbacks. He didn't benefit from any kickback that we can prove or that the the prosecutors have proved. So it's kind of interesting there. This is a witch hunt. We're going to learn why they're going after Ken Paxton here in a minute. But I actually watch a lot of YouTube health. This is a little side note. I watch a lot of YouTube health, YouTube uh, health videos. And I'll tell you, I, I do buy the premium, um, I think I don't know. It's twelve ninety nine. I think I I get that because I don't like the commercials and I watch YouTube almost as much as I watch news and uh, for a lot of different things. And uh, I think the premium uh, subscription there is not bad. Probably worthwhile getting, but uh, depending on how you use YouTube, there's this guy. His name's Doctor Eric Berg. Berg. And he gives medical advice. He's 
says he's a doctor, but, you know, he's a do- holistic kind of doctor. But in any case, he was giving sort of like alternative opinions and uh, on medicine and things like that. It's called America, free speech, right? He can give his two cents. Well, he just got censored. This is the kind of thing, I'm going to play this audio clip. This is the kind of thing that's happening too often in the private sector. Let's take a listen. Well, it's official. YouTube has just now banned anything related to health that doesn't align with the general medical consensus. So if any information related to health doesn't agree with the World Health Organization, they won't necessarily always take down the the video, but they're going to change the algorithms. So they're going to replace those videos that were popular, that had lots of likes and lots of engagement with medical information. This new partnership with YouTube is supposed to protect you against misinformation and promote high-quality health information. And their definition of misinformation is anything that opposes their viewpoint. I mean, if you go to drberg.com, you will see that I have 7,607 success stories. I'm helping people. I'm giving people lots of non-toxic solutions. And if you just read the comments, you'll see that a lot of people are being helped. So my information is not dangerous. It's not misinformation. It's actually quite helpful. And this new change is going to hurt a lot of people because they're not going to be able to find alternative viewpoints, alternative opinions. Sometimes medicine doesn't work. And they're looking for inexpensive natural remedies to handle certain body issues. But guess what? Now they're going to have a very difficult time finding those solutions because all these medical sites are going to replace alternative health. I mean, I used to rank for so many conditions. Now you can't even find me unless you type Dr. Berg slash whatever. And even on the keto diet. I have 928 keto videos. That's right, 928 videos. Guess what? When you type keto diet, you can't find me. Instead, the number one ranked video is from Mayo Clinic, okay? And the comments are turned off. And you can see the likes are actually not very high compared to the number of views. I think they have like 260,000 views, but very few likes. And it's an anti-keto video. And I'm going to share some interesting things in that video. But I first want to communicate a couple things. You know, a long time ago when Google started, they had this motto. And that was, do the right thing. And then they changed it to, don't be evil. And now I don't even even know if they have a motto. But you think just giving people this one medical viewpoint, this monopoly over your body, your healthcare, you think that's going to increase the quality of health? I mean, basically this move is going to wipe out the competition. And competition, competing viewpoints and opinions are very, very good in the healthcare field because it forces everyone to raise the bar and do better at getting results. And how do we trust this medical group? Uh, with all the strategic alliances and the strategic partners, the strategic alliances with Big Pharma and how they partner with medical universities and medical journals. How do we trust that? Like I said before, their definition of misinformation is basically any information that opposes the medical viewpoint, the medical consensus. 
How do we make sure they're transparent with all the conflict of interest, the strategic alliances and the strategic partners, and what they call the stakeholders, which some of them are part of industry, and of course the revolving doors with all the directors? It's terrible. It's terrible. And I think it's going to hurt a lot of people because freedom of health information is really freedom of speech. And, and you know, that that is so true. And that's exactly what they did with COVID. And they misinformation about ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. It's the world we're living in right now. And we have to somehow fight back. I guess Rumble is, but, you know, uh, the numbers are really with YouTube. All right, we're going to get to uh, the final chapter of this show. Oops. Sorry about that. Um, caller, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Scott. Good morning. we got to keep question. this really quick. I have a question. So uh, um, how long is it going to be until uh, people are going to get arrested for requesting a second opinion from their doctor? Right. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. Are you allowed to question your doctor anymore? Yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> you might get in trouble. They might drop you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, that's the thing. Right, you know, like there it. were okay. by the way, just one more thing. There were uh, doctors that were not going to see you if you didn't get a vaccine. Remember that? Yep. Yep. All right. Thank you for calling in. <laughs> okay, right, bye. Bye bye. Yeah, that's true. Um, all right. We gotta get to this Ken Pax. I've been promising this video or this audio all week. And finally, we're going to get to it, but we're running out of time. Um, but here, here is a good chunk of it. This is the reason why Ken Paxton is being prosecuted right now. So in Texas, we have very specific laws about how you can do mail-in ballots. And I can talk about voting machines, all kinds of different ways that election fraud occurs. But the one that I know happens very significantly, at least in my state, and I think across the country, is mail-in ballots. And our legislature passed, when I was in the Texas House, we passed a photo ID law. It's been very effective uh, because when you have to show up with a photo ID, it, it works pretty darn well as opposed to showing up with a utility bill. And it's interesting because the argument has been that, that, that that's discriminatory. Now, as we all know, to check into this hotel, you had to show a photo ID. To get here on a plane, you had to show a photo ID. Pretty much everything you do, and no one looks at it as discriminatory or illegitimate, Except when you vote, for some reason, the argument is that's discriminatory, even though we all have to provide the same thing. Well, fortunately, in Texas, we passed it, and it, it has been, it's been over a decade. It's been very successful. And despite the claims that, that voter participation would go down, voter participation has gone up. Because people trust the system, they're more likely to go vote. It seems very reasonable, and it's actually worked very well. It works very well in states that require photo ID. If you do not have that in your state you have a high risk of, of voter fraud. So in Texas, there are very specific, and I think this is true in other states. Now, I'm not talking about California or Oregon. I'm talking about states that actually care about election integrity, like Utah, Senator. Um, we require that you can only mail-in ballot for certain reasons. You have to be disabled. You have to prove that you're out of town. You have to have um, over 65, or you are in prison, but you're not a felon. Only reasons you can do, those are still pretty broad reasons for, for voting by mail. So when you vote by mail, and I want to explain this, some of you might know this, but it's really important to understand this, because the argument is, you guys can't prove fraud. And guess what? The other side, because of the way they do this, is absolutely correct. Because when you typically mail out a mail-on uh, mail ballot, you have, to, you have to request by application, you sign that mail-in ballot, say, I need this mail-in ballot because I'm over 65 or I'm going to be out of town. And you send it in and they send you a ballot. 
you, you vote, you stick your ballot into an envelope, you sign that envelope, and you send it back in. And they don't have a photo ID, but they can compare signatures. That's what they do. It's called signature verification. It is not ideal. It is not the most safe process, but it is something. And it, 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 it works okay. Well, what happened during COVID, and it happened in my state, and I want to tell you that story because it, I think it I think we were able to stop what other states didn't see or didn't try to stop. We ended up having judges in about 12 different counties basically ignore our state law and say, no, because of COVID, we're not going to follow state law. And by the way, these were all very liberal counties. This was Travis County, which is Austin, Harris County, which is Houston, Bear County, which is San Antonio. They decided they would just mail out ballots to everyone. Well, that means in Harris County, we're talking about close to two and a half million ballots. In Travis County, over a million ballots. In Bear County, over a million ballots. Donald Trump won our state by 620,000 votes. And so we realized that we had a huge issue. We had 12 lawsuits, all in the worst counties, all with judges that were going to rule against us, including the Court of Appeals in each area. And all I could do was say, wow, what a genius strategy by whoever put this together whether it was George Soros or somebody else, somebody thought this up because it was too well organized and it was, it was a drain on our resources because we were having to fight in all of these different counties. And I had to go to my team, my legal team, very good. And by the way, the, the, the win wasn't 75% against uh, the federal government. It's more like 80. I just want to correct that. Um, <laughs> so I have a very good legal team. And I said, look, we cannot lose a single case. We have 12 cases. If we lose one case, they win. I said, it's a genius strategy. We are in liberal courts where we're going to lose. We're in courts of appeals where we are going to lose. It doesn't matter what the law says. And if we lose, if we can't figure out how to win all of those cases, we're going to lose the state. And so we, we went after it and we had to maneuver around our courts of appeals who were trying to hold up. Travis County was trying to hold up until the ballots got mailed out a decision on the merits of the case. And so if that happened, if the, if the ballots go out, the genie's out of the bottle and we lose. Game over. Texas legislature very likely turns Democrat. Some of the Supreme Court members, four of them were up. We lose four of the nine. We're in trouble. And very likely Donald Trump loses the election. So I called the president in May and I said, hey, you need to know this. I said, I don't have time to deal with other states, but very likely you're, you've got a very good chance of losing Texas by mail-in ballot. He goes, there's no way I lose Texas. I, I won by nine points. I said, yes, but if they have a chance to mail out all these ballots, and I said, I've got 12 cases, if I don't win every single one of them, I have a feeling you will lose. If Harris County can send out two and a half million ballots, they will just count ballots until they get to the right number. Because when those ballots get mailed out, we don't know who sends them in because there's no signature verification. Anybody. Bingo. Signature verification. That's the key. Well, we're out of time. And uh, I'll tell you, that case, that's why they're going after Ken Paxton right now. Hey, be sure to check out MAGAPAC.org to find out how we're advancing America First policies to make America great again. And to keep this show commercial free, use Red State over at MyPillow.com. We'll see you next time on the radio. Bye-bye, everybody.